Welcome now to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. And uh, today we are presenting our second live episode of Debunked. It's the only Utah podcast combining evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction, substance use disorders, and homelessness. And today we're broadcasting live from the 2021 Intermountain Tribal and Rural Opioid Wellness Summit. Uh, the title of this year's summit, Bringing Harm Reduction and Recovery to uh, Recovery Communities. Uh, today we uh, are welcoming in debunked host, Don Lyons. Uh, and so Don, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks Tom, it's good to be with you and welcome everybody to the Opiate Summit and the Debunked Live Podcast. And we're welcoming in uh, Josh Schuyler as well. Josh Schuyler, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. And Maria Treviso joins us. Thanks Hello. for joining us. Hello, thank you. Uh, so today we're debunking the myth that indigenous and non-indigenous groups don't want to work together to solve social problems. So uh, before I turn it over to Don to uh, handle the first few questions, I want to get some introductions. So uh, Don, why don't you go first? Tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, uh, English name Don Lyons. I'm a citizen of the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe and also a uh, bear clan on that side and turtle clan uh, from Haudenosaunee, the Mohawk Nation. And uh, calling in from my basement in East Lansing, Michigan. And I'm blessed to be the uh, host for Debunked. Um, and I also work closely with Josh and uh, Maria in doing the uh, prevention and wellness work in Indian country. So that's me. All right. Uh, Josh Schuyler, tell us a bit about yourself. All right, my name is Josh Schuyler. Uh, I'm Oneida. I also live in Michigan, just outside uh, Detroit. So I've been doing wellness work in Indian country for well, all my life, but professionally for the last 10 plus years. Uh, Don and I go back um, 25, maybe 30 years uh, in the community. Um, had the pleasure of working with Don and Maria for several years now doing this work. So thanks for, thanks for having me. Looking, looking forward to the, the rest of the conversation. Great. And Maria Treviso, uh, tell us about yourself. Yeah, uh, so good day to all, all, everyone, all my relatives. I'm Isleta Pueblo on my daddy's side from uh, one of the Pueblo tribes of, originally of uh, New Mexico area, what is known as New Mexico. And then after the 1680 revolt, they uh, took as hostages part of the tribe down to El Paso area. And on my mom's side, I'm uh, Purapecha from the interior of Mexico. Wonderful. And our, our audience uh, will, I think, readily perceive that we are not in a central location. Um, so the, the, the joys of technology, this year's uh, Intermountain Tribal and Rural Opioid Wellness Summit is virtual. So that uh, has some advantages, some disadvantages, but a lot of advantages. So we can be in our areas uh, where we're living and, and join each other um, online through Zoom. Um, including our radio audience here. So welcome to our radio audience. So uh, Don Lyons, uh, host of uh, uh, podcast, uh, take it away. First few questions here. All right. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. And welcome again, everybody. We look forward to have a good conversation and knowing Josh and Maria, we can get right down to it uh, in the conversation. Uh, so today, you know, we're exploring the myth that indigenous and non-indigenous folks don't want work to don't want to work together to solve problems. So let's start. Um, 
you know, at the first place and try to get a, a understanding of where do we think this myth comes from? So I want to go with Josh first and then um, and to Maria. But Josh, where do you think this myth originated from or, or comes from? Yeah, thinking of um, some ideas for this and, and maybe it's just around misinformation <clears throat> on both sides, misinformation from you know, non-Indigenous groups, uh, non-Indigenous communities, and also, uh, I guess, the Indigenous community uh, itself. Uh, I know here I mentioned living in Detroit, you know, it's a, a variety of people who live here and my family, community, a lot of tribal folks here, you know, come from a, a diverse background that includes tribal uh, and others. So um, I think that it, historically too, coming from tribal communities uh, and, and knowing families around here, uh, it's just something that there needs to be education and uh, be able to raise that community readiness. That this, this isn't an issue, we need to work together um, and rely on each other to do this work and support. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Maria, I'll ask you the, the same question. What Where do you think this originated from? Oh, well, you know me as a behavioralist, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at either people or animals. I, I like looking at my animals in the yard and I go, oh, why, why are they doing that? You know, why is that animal? Oh, I, or I didn't know they did that. But you, you asked a really good question. So it always has to go back to what was the origin? What, and I like what you say, Don, not what's wrong. Because if we're looking at this myth, we're looking at what's wrong. So I like to look at what happened. And as a behavioralist, we're looking at what happened. So some of it has, let, let's go back. Uh, first contact, so we have history. What happened after first contact? Maybe not so good things, some good things. So there's a little mix, a little bitterness and a little sweetness there. So if the contact, the experience with us, with each other, is not so pleasant, there might be a, uh, an issue of trust. Then, then, so you have that. And so if you have unhealthy behavior together, then it creates a, a, an environment, a situation, a history, an experience of not trusting. And then the other part is like, you know, part of it is not being seen. You know, there's probably some people on this call today that go, I didn't know there were still Indians here. There's, there's Indians in the state. Uh, and then, then there's the, the other part where they go, really, what kind of Indian are you? And do you have a card? Can you say something in Indian for us? You know, and, and then you get to be that sacred Indian and we see it in film and myth and, and, and stories and everything else that you can be that magical Indian or that magical black person, you know, the, the wise Indian or the white, the person of color who is wise. And we see it on TV and now with our, our Asian Kung Fu is popular again. So we have that wise Asian person. So it just gets passed around depending on who's being questioned at, the, at, at that point. So again, history, trauma. So we have to unpack some of that to be seen and to be invited into the conversation and to have those conversations as we do in our work before we go forward. Because if we don't tell that story, then it's kind of like a secret in the background and it can impede our relationship because a good relationship, in my opinion, is based on trust, transparency, honesty, and willingness to even say the icky and difficult things. But I'd like to hear uh, what else you have to say, Don. Oh yeah. I think you hit a lot of good things. You and Josh both talked about it and we, we explored this too, the idea that there's elements of history right and we understand sometimes that's his story and it's not necessarily our story being indigenous folks 
Um, and then it's my story and we're all great storytellers. So being able to see each other's story is a, is a big, big item, seeing each other's humanity. Um, so the, you know, thinking about, and you brought this up and Josh, you brought it up too, the idea that this myth, it's kind of built in, in structural and systematic processes, right. Right. That have been layered on over the generations. You know, it's not just something that came up in the, in the eighties or the nineties, you know, this is something that has been built on since first contact, you know, we're talking 1400s. Yep. Um, so there's, there's a, a long history and layers there. So thinking about those, those layers that I know both you and Josh work through on the daily work that you get to do in Indian country, yes. how does this myth impact your work, the work that you do with communities? And I know both of you work with uh, indigenous communities and also with non-indigenous communities. Right. Um, and there's points of contact. You, you've been facilitators in different areas to bridge those conversations and those relationships. So if you could just uh, share with the folks here, you know, how does this myth impact? How has it and how have you seen it impact the day-to-day -day operations of the work uh, that you get to do? And if you have any examples, uh, that would be great. So I'll, I'll go with Josh first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, in history, I know it's affected uh, my work. So just a background, Don, Maria, and I, we've worked and done some planning uh, in communities, uh, tribal communities, uh, communities in Alaska, uh, urban Indian populations. Uh, and a lot of that work was around planning and building a, a blueprint for how we're going to work in the community. So looking at behavioral health, medical, dental, uh, the whole spectrum of care. Uh, and for many of those communities, uh, partnerships were essential, partnerships internally with tribe, other tribal entities, other people who serve as tribal members, uh, but also outside, you know, we're talking, you know, law enforcement, educational systems, uh, other medical systems, uh, us here, consider myself an, an urban Indian, uh, the partnerships with our local center, uh, with the outside community, the city, the city of Detroit, the county, uh, the seven local counties, uh, were vital because we had our people spread out all across the state, all across our service area. Uh, so just thinking of how can we work together, how difficult it was at times, and how do we extend that, um, I guess, invitation, you know, for you to come into our center, our community, uh, and then for some of those organizations and structures to invite us in to be partners. Um, it's oftentimes they'll, they'll give us a call and need some support. Uh, it oftentimes happens around November where they want us to come into schools and speak to the story, speak to the kids, and, and that's great. Uh, but really trying to create a seat at the table uh, so we can be involved in planning, so they can see not all Indians look like X, Y, Z. Uh, there's many of us who are multicultural, you know, many of us who are multi-tribal. Uh, so come in and learn, and we were able to do some good work. Um, I know Maria, Don, myself, not just in the communities we live in, but some of the communities that we supported, many of the communities we supported, we were able to, to come in, uh, extend partnerships and just uh, have conversations. I've seen Maria and Don both masterful, masterfully um, facilitate conversations that communities and partners didn't think were possible. You know, that's law enforcement with the outside uh, of tribal communities and reservations and saying, wow, we didn't know in two or three days of doing this work, we could look at the assets and resources in the communities and, and have a conversation and look to build on some, some pillars for the future. Uh, so I know that partnerships are vital. I know that it's possible. Uh, I've seen it happen uh, and it's been a great part to see, but I know there's still more work to be done uh, with building those partnerships out in tribal communities, uh, urban, rural, et cetera. 
Yeah, thanks, Judge. You hit on a couple of points. I want to come back to you on the the, the dynamics of urban and reservation because there is there's some similarities. And there's definitely some dif- differences. So I want to pull on that strand in a second here, but I want to go with Maria. Maria, um, you know, thinking about the work that you do, and you've been doing this. You're a wellness warrior, and been doing this work for <laughs> in a good way uh, for a long time, uh, and have mentored you know myself included and other people in doing this work. So thinking about this myth, you know, indigenous and non-indigenous folks not wanting to work together to solve um, solve social justice issues. Um, how does that impact the work that you do? You know, how, how have you seen it played out uh, in the day-to-day work that you've done? Well, the thing is, um, you know, there, there's a word called abolitionists. And back in the day, you know, that term had been used for uh, deconstructing the slavery model. And then the model of slavery is about uh, stolen labor to work stolen land. And yet at a certain point, doctors, physicians, ministers, good people decided to put themselves on the line to deconstruct those systems. And they put themselves in jeopardy because anybody that wanted to deconstruct those systems uh, it, well, it was punishable by death or a good beating. And so Dr. Bettina Love talks about co-conspirators, that we don't just need allies, that we need co-conspirators. And that's somebody who's willing to take a hit for you, to cash in on their whiteness, to cash in on their privilege, to take a hit for you. And we have several examples of that. Uh, at Standing Rock a, a while back, uh, a young lady, um, I'm spacing out her name, um, Sophia... Walensky, I think it was, uh, she had the night shift watching the bridge that the protesters had taken and they shot her and they blew up her arm. Uh, she was a co-conspirator. Instead of just standing there going, hey, uh, they're going to shoot at us. You guys better get over here. She took a hit. You know, when the any church in Charleston, South uh, Carolina, uh, right after that young man, Mr. Roof, went in and killed all those people, there was a protest and they knew it was going to have to be a woman, a woman of color. So they trained her how to climb the pole and they had her bail ready. But on, on that day, um, a, a feller, uh, I think his name was James Tyson. He and she were at the IHOP and then they got the call. Hey, we're going to take that Confederate flag down at the state house. At one point, you know, they were trying to talk her down, talk her down, talk her down. And the cops said, well, we'll just tase the flagpole. That'll get her down. And at that moment, Mr. James Tyson went from being an ally to being a co-conspirator because what he did was he put his hand on that flagpole. And he knew that they weren't going to tase that flagpole because they weren't going to tase a healthy white man. And and I, I lay this out for you because... You have to, at a certain point, you make a commitment that I'm going to not just show up at the meeting with the, all the, the, the buzzwords and to offer my sympathy, but when the work has to happen, I'm going to leave. That we need people that are invested for the long haul, not just with the buzzwords that they re- read the latest book and that they could try to out indigenize the indigenous population, because this isn't just an issue here in North America. We see the same issue in South America, Central America, and Australia, where you and I get to work. It's the same issue where there's love, depending on how brutal the colonization was, we have these same issues of substance abuse, mental health issues, marginalization, uh, 
housing insecurity, food insecurity, economic insecurity. So it's about having partners who are willing to cash in on their privilege and their whiteness, because some people say that, and I love this analogy that that whiteness and privilege is like a bank, an ATM account that replenishes itself every day. So how do you cash out on that to help and to elevate others? So to be willing to put yourself on the line. So it's about cultivating one, putting, uh, and I like how our teachers who help design the curriculum that we work with, the gathering of Native Americans, they, they used to say this one thing, check your ego at the door. Are you, are you here to help or are you here for the glory? Right. Maria, you pulled, I want to follow up with you on something before we go into the urban and yeah, uh, sure. reservation aspects of debunking this myth. So you, you hit on some really key areas and that, you know, a part of this, part of the healing process is which I want to get to, you know, it's, we have to truth tell aspects mm. of things mm. and be able to be strong enough to truth tell and be strong enough to listen and hear um, and then take that. I heard someone say that guilt is not a useful feeling. It's uh, it's about empathy because guilt makes it turn to you as a selfish way of thinking about I'm guilty about this and promoting empathy is about motivating you to have action to do something uh, about the work. So you hit on those areas and about co-conspirators and allies and there's layers to that. Mm-hmm. I also heard layers of being a family, you know, that takes it to a different level yeah. than co-conspirators seeing each other as family. Uh, and a part of this. So I wanted to, maybe Josh can jump into this too, before we get to the urban and reservation differences, is that your role as facilitators, right? And I think that's a key role uh, that sometimes is, is we can't just sit down and have conversations. There needs to be a structure that's developed in a healthy trauma-informed way. And the GONA, as you said, the Gathering of Americans helps us develop those structures. But for folks out there that are, maybe they're non-Native, maybe they are Native, um, maybe they're not sure, you know, could you just explain the importance of the role of, of a facilitator, being a healthy mm. facilitator uh, for these for these critical conversations to happen? Some some tips and some some insight there. I'll start with Maria. Oh, heavens. well, part of it is to know that you have to trust that the community already has the answers. They already know the story they already know what resiliency they have in the community. You have to trust that as pitiful as some communities are, and I say pitiful, you have to remember, we have over 500 years of marginalization, of, of, of colonization, of systems that need and are starting to be dismantled that have marginalized people. The, 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 the recent uh, COVID highlighted the the lack of infrastructure in some of our rural communities. They're saying, oh, you, you COVID, wash your hands and wash it with water for this many seconds. And you got communities that don't even have water. They don't have running water because it has to be trucked in for 30, 40, 50 miles for communities that don't even have the money for the gas to bring it in. Well, why don't they build a well? Because they don't have the electricity. And by the way, that water is contaminated because the federal government gave coal companies to, and uranium companies permission to come in and mine this stuff and left the water contaminated. So part of it is about re-examining the infrastructure, which is the topic du, du jour right now. And that's part of it. 
So you have to take a look at it, but, but the most important thing is that the communities have the answers, they have the power, they have the language. And, and part of facilitation is realizing they are blessed with that and getting out of the way of that and let them tell their story. 100%, you know, being able to reframe it and kind of understand that there's elements of truth telling, there's elements of resilience, mm -hmm. there's elements of trauma and being able to help navigate that and guide that in a lot of ways is an important role for a facilitator. To have those critical conversations, you just talk about the reality of the uh, pollution and the not access to various things. That's a part of wellness. That's a part mm -hmm. of harm reduction. That's a that's a part of debunking this myth that we're talking about right now of Absolutely. Uh, indigenous and non-indigenous groups uh, not wanting to work together. Uh, but I think we might have to take a quick break. So I'll uh, pass it to uh, to Tom here. Yes, uh, thank you, Don. Uh, so just to reset the scene here, we uh, are listening to Access Utah here on Utah Public Radio. And uh, this is our second live episode of Debunked, which uh, combines evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes, debunk the myths about harm reduction and substance use disorders and homelessness. And we're broadcasting live from the 2021 Intermountain Tribal and Rural Opioid Wellness Summit. We have with us a debunked host, Don Lyons, uh, also Josh Schuyler and Maria Treviso. And uh, so let's take a one minute break right now. Programming on Utah Public Radio is supported by our members and Palmer Home Furnishings, offering a variety of sofa love sets, dining room and bedroom furniture. Located at 1670 South Highway 165 in Providence, information at palmerhomefurnishings.com. And Spanish language programming is supported by the USU Office of Global Engagement, fostering diversity, inclusion, and cultural awareness by supporting international students and scholars and facilitating study abroad opportunities. Information at globalengagement.usu.edu. I'm Senator Dan McKay. I want you to join us for both sides of the aisle from KCPW here on Utah Public Radio, a weekly debate over politics, policy, and current issues where I give the truth, Shireen says something, and Natalie tries to moderate the middle. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing you, the residents of the state. Don't miss the conversation. Tune in Thursday mornings, 10 o'clock, here at Utah Public Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to Access Utah on Utah Public Radio. I'm Tom Williams. I'm a host of the program, and we're pleased to be bringing you a live episode of Debunked, the podcast. We're broadcasting from the 2021 Intermountain Tribal and Rural Opioid Wellness Summit. And we have with us debunked host Don Lyons. We have with us Josh Schuyler and Maria Treviso. And uh, glad you're listening, uh, whether by Zoom on the conference or uh, over the radio and the various other uh, means of listening to Utah Public Radio. Welcome to everybody. So, Don, before I uh, send it back to you for, for the next couple of questions, um, Maria Treviso, you said something earlier that really caught my attention. We've been talking about it a little bit more before the break. You said we have to say, if I got it right, the icky and difficult things. Mm-hmm. We have to say those things. That's talking about the conversation that needs to happen. So yes. I'll start with you, and I want to hear from everybody. Um, what are some of those things? Oh, my. Difficult things. And and then a, a follow-up question, how do we have that conversation? Because that, that's as demonstrated in just life today, it's difficult to have those conversations. 
it's about context. It's about context and my colleagues, and I'm glad that they're here, but we've been fortunate to be the recipients, uh, the chosen, if you will. We have colleagues and friends that are much more brilliant than ourselves and who were assessing the situation years ago. Um, and they looked around the community and when, um, uh, uh, there was a lot of community mobilization that was happening in the late 80s and 90s. And so from DC, and this went out to everybody across the nation, long story short, it wasn't working. And then, uh, and I like your question, Tom, they asked, why isn't this working? Why isn't it working in the African-American community, the Pacific Islander community, the Latino community, the Indian community? And one brave soul said, it's too white. There's no culture in there. There's no language, there's no protocols, there's no stories. So then they went back and each of the communities designed uh, different programs and actually they look very much alike. One of those sibling curriculums was a gathering of Native Americans. So it's divided into four pillar pieces, belonging, where we uh, examine the issues. What would a child need to know that they belong? What would they need to feel, right? This is just not an intellectual exercise. What do you need to feel? So once we've established that with a group, then we can tell the story, what you just said. How do we have that story? But we can't dive into the difficult, horrific story of how we got here without having a safety net. And during that first day, we talk about our, our, our blessings. What is our resiliency? And as we go through these, these components, belonging, mastery, where we tell these hard and difficult stories, and those stories include genocide, violence of different nature, the courting, quartering of people, murder, Gatling guns taken into camps to murder women and children when the government knew that the men were away, um, the hanging of uh, 30-something people the day after Christmas, uh, the biggest uh, mass execution of people because they were out. Food, talk You want to talk about food insecurity? They were out gathering food for their people because the government had abrogated its responsibility on the treaties that they had signed to feed the people. They abrogated their responsibility on those treaties under Lincoln. And then when those men went out to go get food, they were off the reservation. And that's, you know, that's part of, you know, what's the little cuts that kill us? When you hear somebody say, oh, they're off the reservation. They went off, oh, they went off the reservation. Or let's, uh, let's uh, hold down the fort. That language harkens back to that time where you had to keep the savages in order. Who are you holding down the fort from? You went off the reservation without permission to go feed your people and then you get hung for it? That's part of the legacy that we need to talk about. And, and Don said it well, you can't live in the guilt, but let's do something about it. Let's take that guilt and, and understand the situation. So in the Gona, we go from belonging, creating a sense of understanding and groundwork with some norms. We talk about the difficult things and then seeing how are we gonna work together through interdependence and then bringing it home. What am I gonna do? What are we gonna do together to help our communities flourish and to go forward? and start finally addressing those plans of community mobilization, but not, a, not as us, them, but as healthy communities together. Because, and Josh, you said it earlier, a lot of us are blended. A lot of us, are, our families were white, we're black, we're yellow, you know, and it's, it's like the, the colors and, you know, I'm gonna pull it out here real quick for those of us who are on Zoom. You know, one of the things that we have, and you see it in our drums and our shirts, it's these four sacred colors, the white, the red, the yellow, and the black. And 
you know, one of our stories says that these colors are sacred because that's the colors of all the people. And once we remember that, that we can come together and do good in the name of whatever your higher power is. And, but we have to be able to talk about, yes, these hate things happen and not just go, oh, that's ancient history. That's in the past. Why don't you get over it? Well, we can't get over it until we have a conversation. It's just like if you have a brother or sister or a partner or a husband or a wife or whatever, and they just want you to get over what happened, but you never talk about it, that's going to fester. And we know from medicine that if you don't take care of an infection or a cut, it festers and then it goes systemic wide. Well, we have a systemic wide situation in our judicial systems, in our educational systems, in our economic systems, our unfair redlining that happens with banks and how land is transferred. And again, let me go back to that. stolen land, stolen land, stolen labor. So until we address these icky, uncomfortable conversations and talking, I'm not, I'm not making it up, but I'm not saying it to make you feel uncomfortable, but to have a recognition. I want you to see me and what my ancestors went through and what I go through when you say, oh, they went off the reservation, too many Indians, you know, and, and it's in our conversation. So until we undo that, until we can have honest conversations about why that's offensive and historically jarring, it, it's hard to go forward. But if you're willing to walk with me through that, then you'll understand why I bristle at certain language, why I bristle at certain policies, and knowing that my own mother and my own dad had to obey signs that said, no Indians allowed. Or that even in my own lifetime, I've gone into restaurants where I won't be served. In my own lifetime. In my own lifetime. And you, you, know, you hear about white supremacy in, in the thing. It's still there. It's still there. There's certain stores in certain towns that they won't serve you. You know, and that still happens today. So we need to be able to have that. Tom, bless your heart. And I mean that in a good way, in the best way possible. Because we can't have honest conversations without having the difficult ones. So I, I thank you for that question. Uh, Josh Schuyler, I'd, I'd be interested in your perspective. Thank you for that, Maria Treviso. Mm -hmm. um, your perspective, uh, how... how how do it have you had experiences uh with this where 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 you have been able to have productive conversations while i guess getting real and, and addressing these difficult things yeah so uh at the top of the well when i saw the the i guess the, the planning for this podcast i was thinking back to uh geez i want to say three or four years back uh maria and i did some work um in a community uh on the, the west side of the united states i'll say uh, I got put in to help support Maria, and I remember when we got there, like, oh yeah, by the way, there's a lot of these difficult issues going on. There has been, you know, domestic violence. There was a, a murder involving a police officer or a shooting involving a police officer in the community. Uh, community violence, um, struggles with the the mayor, uh, the the local uh, from the tribe, and then the local community. There's just uh, a lot of issues. Like, well, geez, didn't know this coming in. Uh, so we have the Gona, as Maria mentioned. It's probably the foundation to every training we do with the belonging, the mastery, the interdependence, and generosity. 
I want to say we had three days or so when we had uh, police officers who, who came in and supported the mayor who was there, tribal leadership who were there. Uh, and the GONA is, is, is an event. It's an uh, intervention. Uh, it's a way to work together. Uh, and throughout that couple of days, we had people coming up to us saying, oh, I didn't know this was happening or I want to be, uh, as Maria said, an ally or a co-conspirator. We were able to identify some of those people who existed in the community. And by the end of the, the training, uh, we had some pillars to build off of. You know, what are the, what's the next time we're going to continue to do this work? What are the next steps? So we were able to work with the tribal community who were really struggling to um, address some of these issues uh, while also engaging some of those co-conspirators, the allies, uh, and also build a readiness of some of those people who didn't know uh, or mentioned they didn't know that these issues existed in the community. So that GONA uh, was vital. It was, uh, as I've been told, the GONA is a way for us to have difficult conversations. Not one time in there uh, did anyone, uh, you know, raise their voice. No one stormed out. Uh, we had, you know, great rules and boundaries and protections for everyone who were there. Uh, from the tribal people to the allies. Uh, it was great. Maria is a masterful facilitator, as I mentioned. Um, and it was a good conversation. It was a lesson learned for me because at the end of it, uh, that wasn't it. It wasn't like we came in and changed the, the community and the world in four days. But what we did do was build on something and have something to build on in the future. And then we were able to engage again. I believe Maria went back out there to that community. Uh, that community is still in contact with us, Don, uh, for this work that we, we do. So it, it wasn't as if we came in and waved Dewan, but we were able to finally have difficult conversations and through those conversations look to have um, uh, some next steps and, and some possible solutions to build off of for, for that community, uh, the allies, some of the co-conspirators and some people um, in the communities who wanted change and wanted to uh, address these things. Homelessness came up, uh, missing and murdered Indigenous people. Uh, domestic violence, substance abuse, homelessness, uh, all across the board. And those are some of the things we were able to, to cover and, and look at and have a, a slight vision for the future. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, Don Lyons, before, before I turn back to you for the next couple of questions, I'm very interested in your perspective on this. How, how do we have those difficult conversations where we get real about it, right? But, but also uh, productive. Yeah, and that's a good way to put it, get real and productive. Um, and I, well, there's a lot of points that Maria highlighted and Josh highlighted on there. The things I would add and layer to it is that we kind of know, you know, if we're really honest about the conversation we had, there's structural racism, there's white supremacy, there's uh, economic structures, there's these systematic structures and systems that are in place. And so where mine go, my mind goes to is, okay, how do we do this in a productive way? way where we can see each other and hear each other and get us to a point that's one step towards uh, something positive. And, you know, the processes that Maria have talked about and Josh just elaborate great example of that, that it is possible to have these conversations. And I always think about when you go to the, um, the news, right, and they have this stuff that's going, especially now with George Floyd and they say, oh, we got to have this conversation, then cuts to commercial break and they come back and they go on to another segment. And you're like, wait a minute, when are we going to have this conversation? Because I think people are naturally scared of this conversation, mm -hmm. you know, and I think an element of it is that we have to create some level of safety before we actually dive into these conversations. You know, Josh talked about setting some norms up. How do we want to work together? How do we want to listen together? And once we establish those elements, I think, and having a strong facilitator to help guide that process is a way to operationalize these tough conversations and get us to a point where it's not, it's not an oppression Olympics, it's not uh, guilt, 
you know, it's not shaming or blaming, but it gets to us on the other side of truth telling, honoring, and embracing each other's story that gets us closer to saying, what kind of world do we want to create that's something better to leave our kids? Because this work here, the, the honest truth is that these systems were created over generations, right? So one podcast series, one opiate summit, uh, one training is not going to solve these issues. It might awake us and plant seeds for us, but if we're really about this work, we have to be generational in how we're thinking and how we're doing. Um, so thinking about what we can do now to kind of change or challenge our assumptions that we all carry, to debunk these myths that we, we carry, um, that might help us for the future generations and create more space to have a more dialogue that's productive, you know, getting more productive and uh, move us forward. So those are some of my thoughts on that. Uh, just to just to reset the scene, then we're debunking the myth on this live episode of uh, Debunked. Uh, the, the myth that we're debunking is indigenous and non-indigenous groups don't want to work together to solve social problems. By the way, I just want to make clear for our listeners, uh, GONA, that we've referred to several times as gathering of Native Americans, right? So, right. Uh, so Tom, uh, the next couple of questions here. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Yeah, we're, we tend to speak in acronyms sometimes. <laughs> so I thank uh, Katie for putting that out there and, and Tom for uh, sharing that. So, you know, for people who are just joining us, we get a lot of comments in there. They're appreciating the conversation, the honest dialogue. So it's great and continue to put the comments in there. We've talked about some broad items when debunking the idea that indigenous and non-indigenous uh, communities don't want to work together to solve issues, right? So we're looking at how can we debunk that? You know, why do we carry, we talked about why do we carry that myth? How has it manifest itself in, in the work uh, that we're doing? And Maria did a great job talking, you know, the historical context uh, and the epigenetics of that, how it carries forward is an element. You know, Josh gave some really good examples uh, about, you know, how these Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities do want to work together and how it's creating a safe structure for that to happen. What I want us to dive into here, if we can, and I'll look at Josh here for the first um, shot at this, is kind of get a little more specific. You know, in our in our Indigenous way, there's intersexuality. That's a hot word, right? We're talking about intersexuality. But we know an Indigenous way of looking at the world, everything is always intersectionality. There's always the idea that all my relations uh, that we look at if one thing's happening over here it's happening over there and josh and kind of taking that thread and think about um you know debunk is looking at homelessness harm reduction and and thinking about this myth and i know you had a, a in a prior life you worked in homelessness and uh, i wanted you to share some of your experiences from that and how it how you know have you seen different systems work together and, and maybe specifically working with indigenous uh, communities and, and non-indigenous communities and, and tackling homelessness? Yeah, so years back, uh, first starting out, I was a case manager for a, a homeless team here outside of Detroit and working in the city. Um, I had a lot to learn because I didn't, I had, a, I guess, stereotypes of what homelessness meant and working with a lot of those people um, uh, who were my, uh, in my caseload, I realized, wow, I didn't, I didn't know as much as I thought I did. Um, so they taught me a, a lot, was able to build some partnerships and, and, and work and, and learn, uh, and then translating into the indigenous population and working, uh, in the city, but then also working, uh, on a lot of these projects. Uh, I realized how many native people we have, uh, and people in general that were homeless, uh, in the communities and how little resources and were available to them. 
Don and I worked at a, a urban clinic and an urban center, uh, but I've been privileged enough to work with tribes and other urban communities who shared that this was was an issue. Homelessness was an issue, uh, and how are they looking at um, how are they looking at addressing it? Uh, one community in particular, uh, a few years back, uh, they had a lot of homeless people uh, who had co-occurring disorders, you know, substance abuse, mental health. Uh, and they were working with law enforcement to train law enforcement to be able to actively engage with the community, um, understand the indigenous population, because there's multiple tribes in that community, uh, and then uh, learn some skills for engagement and also what resources were available. You know, they had this large center that had behavioral health, medical, dental, uh, et cetera. Uh, so they're able to kind of build a partnership. Uh, they had a planning grant and a planning project that allowed this to happen. Uh, but that was a huge aspect of their um, their way of looking at stopping the incarceration of a lot of those indigenous people who came into the community, uh, but also helping them uh, get services or access services, whether it was substance abuse, mental health, medical, food, things like that. So they were able to have some town hall meetings and trainings and invite people to it. Uh, but I think they also had to have some difficult conversations and it, it, it was kind of um, taking data and information going to places like law enforcement, presenting it and showing them like, look, you have this issue of engaging uh, with our people and people who are, um, you know, our clientele, our tribal people, uh, indigenous people from the res local reservations, but also who live here in the city. Uh, and you've mentioned you've had this issue and we have this issue of getting them, you know, access to these services, traditional services, uh, medical, behavioral, uh, behavioral health. How can we work together to make this happen? Now, they only had three years to do this, um, so they were able to, you know, successfully uh, start the conversation and start to have the difficult conversations of, of how they would engage with these communities. Yeah, thanks, Josh. I think we're uh, right in time for another quick break. I'll pass it back to uh, Tom here. Thank you, Don. Uh, just to reset the scene, we're uh, broadcasting live from the 2021 Intermountain Tribal and Rural, Rural Opioid Wellness Summit. And uh, today we are presenting a live episode of Debunked. Uh, that is a podcast which combines evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction, substance use disorders, and homelessness. And we're talking with the podcast uh, host, Don Lyons. We're also talking with Josh Dollar and Maria Treviso. So let's uh, take a break. We'll be right back. This is Science by the Slice. When considering a model of physical theory, how do you know it accurately encompasses all it's trying to explain? One way, says USU mathematicians Michael Schultz and Andres Malmandie, is to tie the theory to math, put it through a series of mathematical computations, and look for anomalies. The team studies the Herzebrecht signature theorem, a mathematical preposition dealing with differential geometry, to explore aspects of F-theory, a 12-dimensional branch of string theory, a theoretical framework for the physical universe. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science. And we are back. We are, uh, you're listening to Access Utah. Um, I'm Tom Williams, and uh, we are presenting a live episode of Debunked. It's a uh, podcast which uh, challenges stereotypes and debunks myths about harm reduction, substance abuse disorders, and homelessness. 
We're broadcasting live from the 2021 Intermountain Tribal and Rural Opioid Wellness Summit. And uh, we have with us uh, Josh Schuyler and Maria Treviso and the debunked host, Don Lyons. And we're debunking the myth, indigenous and non-indigenous groups don't want to work together to solve social problems. So uh, Don, take it away. Yeah, thanks, Tom. And I'm gonna go to Maria with this one. Josh did an awesome job of uh, how do we explore debunking this myth where indigenous and non-indigenous communities uh, don't wanna work together specifically on homelessness. Um, so Maria, you can definitely add to that uh, what Josh shared. And I also want you to help explore this idea of harm reduction, right? How does this, when non-indigenous and indigenous communities, the myth is that they don't want to work together to tackle harm reduction. You know, how do we create safe space for people to meet them where they're at, um, you know, and really support them in the re reduction of, of harm? Um, so if you could share, Maria, from your experience, I know you have a background being a nurse, working in a hospital, uh, working with uh, communities, youth as a prevention coordinator, manager, uh, and now the facilitators of the stars uh, with uh, doing Gona and doing work and international work at that. Um, so if you could share, you know, help us debunk this myth about harm reduction and how indigenous and non-indigenous communities um, do want to work together uh, to tackle this issue. You know, when, when I think about that, it's part of it is about empowering people. In fact, there's a fabulous program going on right now in California. It's called SEED, and it's the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration Project, where they are giving people $500 each month. They, uh, in the demonstration project, they gave, 120, uh, they gave 125 people $500 a month no strings attached, you know, because a lot of times we say, oh, we're going to, we're going to do that. We're going to provide tiny houses for people, but here's the rules. Mm -hmm. We're going to provide you mental health services, but here's the rules. Uh, we're going to support you in, in this, but here's the rules. They gave them the money debunking the myth that if you give people money, they're going to use it for drugs or to hurt themselves. What they found is that this, that $500 allowed people to, one, they didn't just keep the money or just go blow it. They prioritized the money um, and they actually even helped their neighbors. Oh, now they had enough to be able to help somebody else. Um, they were able to advance and get full-time work because now they had money for gas or to fix that car or to not lose their housing situation when they get bumped up another $120. And when you don't have that money, um, so part of it is empowering people. And you got to remember that back in the day, we used to have hospitals to serve our mentally ill, people who were struggling with substance abuse. Yes, uh, those systems, once they uh, deregulated uh, hospitals in California, uh, and then those policies went national. And then with our friendship between then President Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, those systems of disenfranchising people went international. So the Commonwealth countries uh, closed their hospitals just like we did in the United States, just like we did in California. And I was there, I was there in 1971 when they gave people a little bag, here's your pills, have a good day. And a one-way ticket to a major city, in that case it was Sacramento and LA and San Francisco and Oakland. And they did the same thing, Oregon and, and Washington across the country. And there's one thing interesting about us as people, we wanna be with our own kind, whatever that identity is. So it's no coincidence that 
we wound up having what we uh, what I came to term asylum ghettos. So people would go by the Greyhound station downtown. And those people were disenfranchised. Homelessness is not new. But it was given a good head start in the 70s when they disenfranchised hospitals and threw people out. We need more demonstration projects where we support people, no strings attached. Here you go. Hopefully this helps you. But the Stockton project, that C project, is showing that people will not only help themselves, but they will help others and lift themselves out. Um, and who would, you know, and if you come from a history of genocide and war and marginalization and unfair practices and systems that are against you, you know, I'm in recovery myself. So until you address those issues of mental illness and, and lack of recognition and being invisible and being part of that myth and that joke, you want to drink and you want to use. And I was that person. Until we have a system that addresses both mental health and substance abuse in a respectful way, uh, we're going to have people that want to use and want to hurt themselves. Because the thing is, I'm going to hurt myself before you hurt me. And if I do it by self-medicating so that I don't, ha I don't have to feel the sting so, 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 so deeply, I'm going to do that. But I'm lucky that today I have people like you, Don and Josh and others that surround me that I can maintain my sobriety and my wellness because it doesn't happen in a vacuum and we have to have systems in place to be our brother's keeper and we have to reestablish those systems. I love the Stockton project. I think we need to create centers, no, no strings attached to help our relatives so they can help themselves. Mm. Yeah. hundred percent Maria. And that, that's uh, someone in, talked about inclusion as part of harm reduction. I totally agree with that. Um, and these are, these are, you know, complex, but also very simple things that we could do, take to steps towards harm reduction, meeting each other at seeing each other. Yeah. And Maria, I want to, I want to um, go off just a little bit here of what you said and get both you and Josh to uh, give some feedback in here. We got a few minutes left and I want to give Tom uh, the last uh, question or two to, to wrap us up. We're almost at the top of the, the hour, which is amazing. I really appreciate this conversation. Um, but Maria, you talked about it and I think it talks about, um, debunking this myth, right? That indigenous and non-indigenous groups don't want to work together. We've been exploring that, yeah, there is opportunities and we do, these communities do want to work together. And Josh gave great examples. You gave great examples. And I'm seeing the thread on, um, on our Zoom here. And it seems like that ally, co-conspirator, those, those layers of support have been resonating with uh, folks on there on the chat. So I want to pull on that and something you just said, Maria, mm. and uh, maybe you can, you can um, have the first words on that pass to Josh here before we pass it back to Tom is this idea of healing work that you mentioned mm. that um, we have to do our healing work and no one can do it for us. Okay. Right. So I can't do Maria. I can't do your work. I can't do Josh's, but I can be a supporter for that. But ultimately you have to do your healing work. Mm -hmm. And I, the reason I bring that up is about being a strong ally and co-conspirator. Can you speak to the importance for if someone wants to be in those roles, um, how important it is for them to do their own healing work? Because um, I've, you know, and I've seen it, uh, misappropriation or appropriation of culture and identity. Uh, so can you speak to it real quick, Maria, and I'll pass it to Josh for his feedback is, uh, why is it important for people who want to be allies and co-conspirator to do their own healing work? 
And let me jump in uh, just before you answer that. We uh, we've got about uh, three minutes left in the in the in the broadcast today, so I'll ask you to be very brief on this. All right, thanks, Tom. Yes, thank you, Tom. It, it bottom line is you can't give away what you don't have. And you know, uh, and if you're trying to help somebody else, but you're still so fractured that you're really broken yourself, it it, it doesn't help. So everybody everybody has an original. Um, kinship, if you will, to ceremony. So be authentic. That's it. Just be authentic. Find what works for you. Don't try to be pretending that you're something that you're not. And transparency and honesty. Again, do your own healing work before you try to help somebody else. Just like they say in the, in the airlines, put your own mask first. Uh, thanks, Maria. I think we got a minute and 30 seconds left. Um, I'll pass it to Josh to, to add there. Yeah, perfect. Um, you know, along the same lines uh, that, that Maria said, just, uh, you know, taking care of yourself. Uh, when I first got into this work as the case manager, I mentioned homelessness. My grandma uh, was just worried that a lot of things I would encounter would be you know, harmful or maybe draw me away from the work or, or bring up things. I lost my, my parents when I was pretty young. Um, but I had my grandma. I have my family. I have good people around me. Uh, I still do. So I continue to surround myself with people who have the same kind of goals and vision. Don, Maria. Uh, and others. And, and we do this work um, the best we can, and, and we support each other. Um, not every time we have planning calls and plan for, for things, we, we do support each other in the work and our, our personal lives and the things that we're doing. So uh, it's important to ground yourself with people who, you know, have those same goals and, and visions and, and learn from each other and, and take healthy yeah. risks. And it's okay to make mistakes. Oh, thanks, Absolutely. Josh. I think we're right at the time, Tom. And, and thanks, Maria and Josh, for your inspiration and words. Uh, I'll pass it back to uh, Tom. Yeah, that's a good uh, point to end the conversation uh, as well. So thanks, uh, everyone. We Just to uh, remind folks that we are coming to you today on Access Utah Live uh, from uh, the... Um, 2021 Intermountain Tribal and Rural Opioid Wellness Summit. And uh, this is a has been a live episode of Debunked, the podcast. We've been talking with uh, Don Lyons, the host of the podcast. Don, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Tom. And thanks, everyone, for uh, being here. Uh, Maria Treviso has been with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me and inviting me to the game. And Josh Schuyler has joined us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for pronouncing my name right, too. Appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. It, it was just by it's just by random luck, I guess. I'm glad I got it right. Uh, and thanks, everyone, uh, participating uh, in the conference here. Uh, the conference goes on, I believe, uh, through the day. And thanks uh, for our listeners to Access Utah for listening uh, today. Thanks, everyone. Many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T here. Look up in the sky before dawn in the northeast above the Wasatch Front, the red sandstone wave above Moab, the chocolate looking Moenkopi layers in Capitol Reef. Up high in the northeast above pine trees above Bear Lake for the W shaped constellation called Cassiopeia. There's a nova, an exploding star that is flared to binocular, possibly naked eye levels. You can see it on the right-hand side of the W. Just follow the W up about an inch and you'll see it. Catch it while it's there. And the star chart is on Skywatcher Louis T. Facebook page. Give it a look. All the important sources for this segment are there as well. Heading back a little closer into our solar system to Mars, a planet that has a lot going on right now, wouldn't you say? NASA having a rover on the surface now, and the Chinese Space Agency, after months of orbiting the Tianwen-1 orbiter, has spotted 
Bond a rover, Churong rover. In an exciting display of physics and orbital mechanics, Chien Ven 1 fired some small downward facing rocket engines to slow down the last few seconds of its fiery descent. The rover safely parachuted down to the Utopia Planetia region, inside an enormous impact basin in the planet's northern hemisphere. Chinese Space Agency hopes to take the rover out for a test drive this weekend around Mars. No tunes on board, but you can hum along with the music of the spheres on the universe if you can tune in Voyager 1 way, way out, about 14 billion miles out, past the outer limits and the solar winds heading into the interstellar space. The long-distance runner has detected a galactic hum. Yes, the spacecraft has picked up the signature of interstellar space itself, a faint plasma hum scientists compared to gentle rain. On Skywatcher Leo T, it's many cultures, one sky. On Earth, UFOs have been with cultures for a long time. Whirly, colorful, unexplained wheels of confusion in the atmosphere in ancient times. Chariots of fire. Landing strips carved into the jungle of Central and South America, visible only from the air. Petroglyphs that look like aliens. Sightings and encounters all throughout history. ETs eating M&Ms in suburban California. Uh, oh yeah, that was a, a movie, a cheesy one. But speaking of movies, check out Fire in the Sky about a documented encounter. I said documented. In the White Mountains of Arizona in 1975. Look it up for yourself. Loggers reported seeing a hovering UFO and one logger was taken away aboard the craft only to be dropped off a few days later. There are thousands of current reports from Chile, unexplained formations that hover and dissolve over Phoenix in Mexico, and way back in the Wayback Machine, a book titled UFO Crash at Roswell, written by Kevin D. Randall, who was a captain in the Air Force at the time, says he viewed, with, along with other people, and handled materials that the spaceship was made out of. They were paper-thin, but could not be burned or destroyed. So, not only did Roswell see a crashed UFO, but there were hundreds of sightings of groupings of shiny new dimes and multiple sightings in Utah. A gleaming steel disc crossing the sky and disintegrating into a ball of blue flames. And all of a sudden, UFOs are all over the mainstream media. CNN, MSNBC, 60 Minutes. CBS News correspondent Bill Whitaker interviewed Luis Elizondo, former head of the Pentagon's Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. Ta-da! Who says UPAs or UFOs are real, whether it sounds wacky or not. There's going to be a report headed to Congress in June. This space cadet's seen a few intriguing lights and magical happenings that I would classify as UFOs. How about you? Keep looking up, look around, get a little bit lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR with transmitters statewide and streaming live. I am Dr. Susan Madsen, director of the Utah Women in Leadership Project with ideas for becoming more resilient. We often think as confidence is how we look, act, and carry ourselves in front of others. However, true confidence is internal. It is demonstrated in our thought patterns and how we respond to situations. It can also play a pivotal role in building resilience. When you do hard things, you gain confidence. This confidence can also assure you of your ability to conquer the next hard thing that comes along. Or, in other words, it helps you build resilience. Confidence is not just thinking about things. It can only be strengthened by doing. Research has shown that confidence is truly a choice. We can choose to change our assumptions, perspectives, thoughts, and behaviors. Confidence is something we can learn and actively work to develop. Confidence can be developed by taking risks, getting comfortable with failing more often, practicing self-compassion, discovering gifts and strengths, increasing self-understanding, finding your passions and voice, 
learning and growing continuously, and serving others. Next time you find yourself in a difficult situation, try practicing self-compassion, bouncing back from mistakes and failures, and remembering that you have already made it through many challenging situations in the past, and you can do it again. This tip is brought to you by UPR's Project Resilience. To learn more about the project and explore more resiliency tips, visit upr.org. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.